Good morning, Cornerstone. My name is Matt. I'll be giving us the scripture reading for today, which comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through verse 12. I'll be reading in ESV. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteousness, righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you guys here again for another Lord's Day. We hope that this time of worship and um, hearing the word, praying together, will be a blessing to you all. So I'm Paul. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors of the church, and we are continuing through a sermon series through Paul's, uh, of the Apostle Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. So he wrote two letters. We actually just finished the first letter last week, and so today we are continuing on uh, with 2 Thessalonians today. And so we read the first chapter. And so um, like we've been uh, going through, uh, we believe that Apostle Paul is the author of this letter. Apostle Paul was called by Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he became an apostle, and you see all of that in the book of Acts. And so you can go there for some background on the Apostle Paul if you would like to know more about him. But Paul is writing to the Thessalonians because they are a, a young church, a new church. He previously went there, and he uh, preached the gospel, and many came to faith, and they even were able to form a local church. And so Paul is writing to encourage them, to exhort them. And here in uh, Second Thessalonians, we see Paul addressing some concerns. He's addressing some controversies that have been ongoing there. And actually, there is uh, one controversy about whether Paul wrote this second letter to the Thessalonians. Some scholars think he did not, but it appears that the writing style and the theological themes in the letter to the second Thessalonians are consistent with Paul's other letters. And so most scholars and we all as, as followers of Jesus and as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, believe that uh, Paul did write this letter. He is the author of this. 
And so um, this letter was written after the first. You, can, you could have guessed that. And it's probably not very long after Paul wrote his first letter. Um, but we do know that there were, like I said, growing issues in the church, growing controversies in the church uh, of Thessalonica. And much of these controversies are addressed actually in the first letter, but he continues to kind of go further into them because there probably continue to be problems there in that church. And so uh, the false teachings that Paul addresses mainly in this letter are twofold. First is in regards to the teaching of Christ's second coming or his return. So that's kind of a big topic of conversation here for the first couple of chapters, and it'll be the main kind of focus for us here today in the first chapter that we read. Um, And also, he addresses the issue of church members not working. Uh, Much like he addressed in the previous letter, he is uh, addressing this issue of idleness, I-D-L-E, idleness. And so he is addressing the sin issue of of being idle, not working, kind of being lazy in that sense. So these are kind of the two big issues Paul is addressing in this letter. And so as we go into the first chapter, let me pray for us and ask the Lord to bless this time. Heavenly Father, we pray for you to move in our hearts, move in our minds. May your word uh, speak clearly to us here today and and use me, O Lord, for that purpose, that your word will be... uh, conveyed in a clear manner, in a way that, Lord, will speak the truth, and that, Lord, my words will be your words. So, God, uh, help us here today. May our hearts be open to your truth and to your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as a, as a dad, I'm a relatively new dad. My oldest is four, or turning four this month, and uh, my young, younger son, youngest son, he just turned one. Uh, and it's really amazing to see kind of the development and growth of children, um, especially for me, for, for my children, and, and, and especially I see them every day. And, and one thing I really enjoy uh, about my youngest son, Karis, at this point in his life, he just started to learn to walk. And he's getting really excited about walking. You know, he, uh, he, he's been pulling himself up on his own and then taking a few steps, and then he would eventually fall, but then he'd get up and he'd do it again. And he does this over and over, and he does it all day, basically, kind of doing this practice and getting up and walking and falling. And, and as he grows, I can sense this uh, resilience he has, kind of this perseverance as he develops and grows. And I think we see that in, in, in human beings, and especially in children, as they grow and develop. They grow resilient, and, per- and they persevere through those moments, through those milestones. And so it makes me, as a father, very proud to see how he is growing in these ways and taking the steps, literally and metaphorically, to endure the falls, then to get back up and keep going. And so the Apostle Paul here today begins this letter by highlighting the perseverance of his fellow brothers in Christ and being proud of their faith. In a way, Paul is kind of like their spiritual father. He's the one who initially preached the gospel to them. So he is a a spiritual father to them in a sense. And he's been proudly observing them, persevering, and being resilient in faith in their development and growth as a young church. And they have been steadfast in faith in spite of all the persecution they were enduring. And uh, we know from 1 Thessalonians that they were enduring much persecution on by the hands of uh, their fellow, uh, fellow Jews and Gentiles alike, 
they were really trying to fight against this new church. And Paul writes in uh, uh, verse 3 for, that we read for today, he says this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, and is right, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for another, one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul is thankful to God for their continued perseverance and endurance during this season of their lives. He's proud of them, and he says that there is hope at the end of all of this. Like in my son's case, as he continues to grow and, and learns to walk, he will be able to do so eventually. He will be able to walk fully, God willing. Now, you know, encouraging my one-year-old son in that way isn't going to really matter if I kind of like say it to him as much. You know, he won't understand me in that way. But for the Thessalonians, this gives them enormous hope. Paul saying this to them. This continued perseverance and endurance Paul says, will not be in vain. He says in verses 7 to 8 of our passage, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So from this passage, we are learning two things. We're learning God is a just God who is our avenger, and the second thing is God is a just God who gives relief and hope to those who worship him. So the first one, first God is a just God who is our avenger. He promises that those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel will be inflicted with flaming fire. Right? These are enemies of God, people who reject God and, and do not obey him. Those who reject God are those who refuse to acknowledge the true God. And more specifically, it's a failure to acknowledge the good news of Jesus. Those who do not acknowledge the good news and do not trust in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and his death and resurrection, if you do not trust in that truth and, and, you, and those who do not obey the gospel, they do not they will be punished, and they will not be saved. And so these things go hand in hand. The, the, those who do not acknowledge the good news and those who do not trust in Jesus are, are those who do not obey the gospel as well. Knowing and trusting in Jesus leads us to obey the gospel. So they are one and the same. They are not really separated in any way. It's not like there are those who know God and do not obey him, and there are, and there, and there are those who uh, do not know God, but they do obey him. No, in fact, those who do not know God do not obey the gospel. And those who know God, they do obey Jesus. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And so um, Paul mentions that God will punish these people who do not know him, do not obey the gospel, with a flaming fire in verse 8. This flaming fire that we see is a, a, an allusion to the, the Old Testament passages where we see God's coming judgment is like a flaming fire. Fire. One example is in Psalm 97, verse 3. It says, Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. 
This fire imagery is also seen in other parts of the Bible and even in the New Testament where we see Jesus' coming judgment will be accompanied by a fire also. And this fire is eternal. It is a flaming fire of eternal destruction that is coming upon those who do not know God. This imagery describes the mighty wrath of God that is to come to those who do not believe in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a debate as to whether this is a literal fire or a figurative fire, but nevertheless, we can understand and gather that God will bring his mighty vengeance upon his enemies. Now, this is the flip side to the God of love and mercy that we might be more familiar with. Right? If you trust in Jesus and acknowledge your sin and need for a Savior, we believe the Bible says you will be saved. God's love and mercy will be upon you forever. It is eternal. But if you do not trust in him, then you will receive condemnation and punishment. Because as sinners, we are all sinners, and we actually do deserve judgment in this way. We deserve to be punished and condemned. But by God's grace, when we believe in the gospel, we can be saved and we can receive eternal life. So this shows us that God is both a God of, of grace, of love and mercy, but God is also a God of justice, and he will bring his justice upon the earth. Now, for some people, they, they hear this or see this, and they think that this is unfair or this is cruel of God to punish some and to save others. You know, why do some get to receive salvation and others do not? But like I said earlier, we all deserved condemnation, right? We all deserve this death and flaming fire. But God, by his sovereignty and his grace, he sent Jesus so that, so that some of us can be saved. So the better question is, why would God even choose to save any of us at all? When we think about it, we do not really deserve it. We rebelled against him. We deserve death and condemnation. So looking at it from this perspective, we, see, we also see that the justice of God is being exemplified in this way because God promises to punish his enemies, the wicked, the ones who disobey him. We have to remember that those who disobey God and turn away from God are evil. Right? Those who are sinners are evil. We are evil in our inherent nature, but we are covered by the grace of God when we believe in him. And so we should be grateful and comforted in knowing that God punishes evil and God will bring upon his perfect justice into the world. And that is a great comfort to those who have endured much evil by the hands of evil people. You know, these are people who have endured abuse or violence in their lives. God will bring his justice to the world for the evil governments, for the sex traffickers, for the rapists, for the murderers, the abusers, the greedy, all of them will be judged for their actions and in turn will be punished. The wrongs of the world will not go unpunished. That is God's promise to us when he says he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and disobey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Because those who do these evil acts 
are most definitely not people who know God. That would be absurd. Those people who do evil are enemies of God. They do not know him. And unfortunately, though, many of these evildoers will not be punished this side of eternity. At times, God, by his grace, is bringing justice here on earth. And there are those who have been punished for their actions and have gone to jail rightly for their evil things they have done. And we praise God for that. But we know that a lot of the time, maybe even most of the time, the pain and suffering that these enemies of God have caused will not be dealt with here on earth. But a day of vengeance is coming. And on the last day is when we will see everybody risen from the grave, even the rebellious angels, and all will be divinely judged. This will happen when Christ returns, as Paul writes, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So we can truly take comfort in knowing that the evil that has been done in this world, and even to us personally, to you personally, the evil that has been done to you will be dealt with. But that doesn't mean that those who have done wrong cannot be forgiven. Of course they can. Even those who have committed the most heinous acts can find forgiveness of sin. To give, a to give an example, a man named Carlos went to prison for 20 years for murdering uh, another man's son. And this other man's name is Nelson. And so Carlos was a drug dealer. And actually, Nelson was also, in fact, a drug dealer at one point. But Nelson had previously turned from his old life and had become a Christian. And eventually, he actually even became a pastor. And so Nelson, because of his faith, leaned on the Lord when his son was killed. And he even prayed for his son's killer to meet the Lord. Carlos, the man who killed Nelson's son, was sent to prison, and, and actually God answered this prayer of Nelson. God, God's miraculous grace came upon Carlos, and he became a Christian 10 years into his prison sentence. And so Carlos found Jesus, and he said this when he shared his testimony. Carlos said, After I turned my life over to the Lord, I prayed on it, and I said, Lord, I would love for you to restore that which the enemy has broken. I wanted forgiveness. Even for someone like Carlos, there is forgiveness. God offers this forgiveness to him. And because he knew the Lord, he trusted in the Lord, and he sought to obey the gospel, he sought, to, he sought forgiveness for his actions if the opportunity would ever come. Well, in a miraculous way, that opportunity did come. It happened at a prison ministry event called Radical Timeout, and, and Carlos was attending a session there, and at one session, Nelson happened to walk through the door. And Nelson came to share his story about how he had gone to prison himself, but eventually turned his life around by giving his life to Christ. And Carlos recognized him after all those years, and he asked the ministry coordinator to set up a meeting. He wanted to seek forgiveness. And so the coordinator was a little worried at first because he wasn't sure how Nelson would react, which is understandable. But when the coordinator mentioned uh, to Nelson about Carlos, for Nelson it was an easy decision. Nelson, he himself knew he came from this lifestyle, 
and the same environment, and he knows that God forgave him. And so he said, how could I not forgive Carlos for what he did? And so they met, they shared a hug, Carlos offered his forgiveness right away, and they prayed for one another, and Nelson accepted his apology. God brings his punishment on those who do not repent and those who do not seek the Lord. But for those who do repent, they are forgiven. And we can see how transformative it is when we receive the good news of Jesus. And it it gives us assurance. It gives us hope. It gives us hope when we go through something tragic like a murder of a son. But it also gives us hope to know that we are forgiven when we have committed even the most heinous acts against God and against other people. This is the power of the gospel. This is the power of knowing Jesus in our lives. It gives us the power to change, to seek forgiveness, to go about our life in a different way, and even to accept forgiveness, even though we never thought we could have accepted forgiveness. And so this naturally leads us to the second message that we see in our passage, which tells us that God is a just God who gives relief and hope to those who worship him. When we worship and believe in the one true God and what Jesus has done for us on the cross, it gives us immeasurable hope. Hope in knowing that our present suffering will end. But also hope in knowing that one day our enemies will be judged for their actions. God is truly a just God. Paul says that they can persevere with confidence in verse 5 because they know that he is just. They can be confident in knowing that God will bring vengeance and justice upon his enemies and persecutors. And he promises to deliver the people of God, the church, into his kingdom. So God promises to punish those who continue to rebel. And he promises at the same time to save us from our sins when we worship and obey him. Martin Luther King Jr., in many of his speeches and writings, focused on this concept of redemptive suffering. And redemptive suffering is this idea that that they would fight and resist racism through nonviolent means and engage with suffering, so knowingly engaging with suffering, specifically unearned suffering, undeserved suffering, all this for the glory of God that brings about good for the world. Dr. King says it like this. He says, The method of nonviolence is based on the conviction that the universe is on the side of justice. It is this deep faith in the future that causes the nonviolent resistor to accept suffering without retaliation. This belief that God is on the side of truth and justice comes down to us from the long tradition of the Christian faith. There is something at the very center of our faith which reminds us that Good Friday may rain for a day, but ultimately it must give way to the triumphant beat of the Easter drums. Dr. King used nonviolent means because he truly believed that God is on the side of justice. And if he engaged with unearned suffering, God would use it. God would use this suffering. 
Dr. King was filled with hope in what Jesus had done. That even though it seemed hopeless for a moment on Good Friday, we know what happens on Easter Sunday. Jesus rises from the grave, and we we receive resurrection power and victory, and declares that God will bring his will upon the earth. He will bring his justice upon the earth. And when we put our faith in that truth, it gives us this amazing power and ability to live with hope, to live with a sense of relief because of what Jesus has done. And we know that this suffering will lead to good, and it will come to an end one day. And in Dr. King's case, the redemptive suffering he endured along with the thousands of others who fought alongside him against racism led to tangible change in this side of eternity. It brought some justice into this world right now. God uses it to bring positive change. And he brought revival into our country. Jesus Christ himself engaged in unearned suffering for the glory of God and the salvation of all people. The Thessalonian church is enduring the same unearned suffering that will be redeemed when Christ returns. Paul tells them to continue to endure. He knows that they will continue to suffer, but he prays that it will lead to perseverance, that their continued perseverance of faith would bring them out of suffering, that God would ultimately use this suffering to bring about good. So Paul ends this chapter in a prayer. He says, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. He specifically prays that God would make them worthy of his calling. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus already made them worthy of his calling by the blood he shed, so it can't be that. So when he prays this, he's praying that they would live worthily in their calling. Their calling is to resolve for good and to do work inspired by faith. Paul has encouraged the Thessalonians to trust that God is a just God, who avenges his and our enemies. Also that when we trust in Jesus, God is a just God who brings relief to our suffering and gives us hope that God would use our suffering for his purposes. In light of this hope and comfort through Jesus, Paul says, now go and live worthy of your calling. It's another call to keep going and persevere in faith and make disciples. Then he says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is for the glory of God alone, received by the grace of God alone. It all centers on God and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. He alone holds us by his grace. And we can only do this by the Holy Spirit working in us and trusting in his grace. So may we do this so that we can give all the glory to our God because he alone deserves it.
So let us remember to thank and trust the Lord, for he is our avenger and he is our hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are our avenger and our hope, that God, you promise to us justice to those who have wronged us. But we also know that for those of us who have done evil, who have committed acts of injustice, Lord, you offer forgiveness to us. You offer us hope in what Jesus has done. So God, we are so thankful that you are a God of justice and a God of love and mercy as well. That you are so gracious in so many ways. And so God, may this truth comfort us here today. May it remind us of who you are, how amazing you are, how you are worthy of all the worship because of what Jesus has done for us. It is through the work of the cross, of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that we can declare these truths in any way. Lord, you have declared victory over sin and death. You have declared that you will bring justice through the cross. And you also have declared that you will forgive us of our sins through the the cross. So God, we owe it all to you. And so God, help us here today. Work in us. Move us. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.